Everybody doing well? There we go. All right. Hey, he lives. And that's what we're here to celebrate. And I love the message of that song that it's, it's not even just that you can face tomorrow, whatever tomorrow might bring, but life is worth the living. And, and I love that declaration. Uh, no matter how you may describe life right now, what it is for you, what it means for you, uh, good or bad, no matter what season you may find yourself in, it is worth living because Jesus lives. And that truth gives us hope, gives us focus, and it's the truth that we're here to celebrate and encourage one another in this morning. And so as we prepare to open up God's word, uh, let's ask for his spirit to open up our hearts and our ears to hear and receive the good news that Christ is alive in the way that that should change us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for this truth uh, that, that Christ is alive and the way that that changes us, Father, the way that it compels us to live courageously um, and that it would compel us to live compassionately towards others. Father, that everything that we face Father, does not need to be met with fear or trepidation or concern uh, because we know that our hands are hold, your hands hold firmly our future. And for that, Father, we are grateful. Uh, We know that this life is worth the living simply because you live. And so as we now prepare to open up your word and your scripture, God, we pray that it would speak to our hearts, it would illuminate our minds, it would change us and mold us into the people that you desire us to be. We thank you, Father, for this time and this privilege to worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So uh, Fridays are the day, is a day off for our staff. And this past Friday, uh, I decided to stain our treehouse that we have in our backyard, which was a fun project, if you can call it fun. Uh, it did equate to me spending about five hours up in a tree. So if you hear a little congestion, that's why. And so I apologize for that, but you know what? I, I think I'm almost through it and it's starting to clear up, which is good. Uh, the, the pandemic has created all sorts of disruptions to life. I think we can uh, point to a long list of examples of how that's played itself out over this last year. I think in the midst of us reflecting upon the different impact that the, or different types of impact that the pandemic has had, on, on one hand, we can lament certain things that we lost this past year, things that we had to go without. And then on the other hand, we can kind of celebrate things that were given to us that we didn't anticipate. It's, it's kind of been a, a both and sort of situation. And, and one of the ways that I think really crystallizes that example is the way that all of our different worlds and arenas became fused into one, right? What I mean is we had the work world, we had the school world, we had the social world, and all of that was forced home. And, and there were some really cool things that resulted from that on the front end of the pandemic, right? I mean, I remember when schools were shut down, nobody was coming to church yet, none of that was happening. Uh, I had more time with my family than I ever had before in my life. We did so many lunches together. We, we did family workouts, for crying out loud. I mean, it was, it was weird, but it was really cool. And, and we could celebrate, wow, this is a really great gift. And yet there were other times that that was not so easy uh, because we, we lost certain things along the way. Uh, One of the things that I lost, or that many of us lost, was just the safety and the serenity of an office. And I remember one particular day trying to prepare a sermon. Uh, We don't have an office with a door in our home. The one study we have is just wide open, so it doesn't really create much peace and quiet. So I'd go to my bedroom to try to create that 
moment. And there I remember one day laying on the bed trying to write out a sermon and my two older kids were like running through, screaming at the top of their lungs. And my youngest, David Wu, is literally climbing on my back and on my shoulders trying to wrestle me. And I'm like typing out a sermon like this. And I'm thinking, this is not a normal way to prepare for a message. And, and I missed being a part of an office. And so what was really interesting is that as we saw this fusion of worlds, it wasn't even just that we lost certain, certain peace and quiet, but we started to invite the world into our homes. With all the video conferencing and virtual calls and things like that, people began to see what it was like in your home in this this fusion of the workplace and the school place and the home life created not just disruptions, but several moments of comedy. And, and I went back and kind of searched over the, uh, this past week, Zoom fails. Have you, I don't know if y'all have done this yet, but there's some great ones out there. And I thought it'd be fun to, to watch just a handful this morning, just to kind of get a sense of just how comedic this, these moments have been. So let's watch a video of some of these uh, disruptions that we saw this year. Already do it, um, kids do it, YouTube kids do it, and the BBC are also now embracing this. Why, and apologize for my cat's tail, why, um, why are you not doing this by default? Rocco, could you tell them? <laughs> question is how do the democracies respond to those scandals and what will that mean for for the wider region i believe one of your children just walked in okay uh, so the question then becomes um if it north i apologize uh me ah there's your so, nanny that's not my nanny that's my wife so the the policy south korea's policy towards is great for bringing about a sense of relaxation well-being and calm. So starting just quickly by breathing in. And breathing out. And it's really challenging, I know, with children home from school and working from home. But just trying to just Keep all of those distractions out of the way. Mostly sunny skies, so make sure you get outside if you can. It'll all it'll help all of our moods. Yes. Oh, and it's down, okay? I love it. Hi, Bernie. These are the trials and tribulations of doing your forecast from home. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to... Uh, uh, take, take we're trying look. to. We're tr can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's. I'm here live. That's not. I'm not a cat. <laughs> I'm here live. I'm not a cat, man. So great. So this was a great example of just how disruptive it can be when we saw people uh, invited into our homes. Man, it, it, it changes the whole message. It changes how you hear and receive the message, right? That's kind of the illustration I'm going with here is that it's difficult to trust somebody's opinion on world news when all of a sudden you see a cattail emerge in the scene. It's hard to take an attorney's word seriously when he appears as a cat or children are running into the room, the atmosphere of the environment really helps convey a message. And, and that's why in some ways, office space became very important. 
right? It, through the years, through the decades, office space became somewhat of a status symbol, right? The larger the office, the, the bigger the office, the, the nicer the furniture. It all conveyed importance, superiority, whatever the message needed to be. And, and it helped influence how you would receive that message. And, and I'm bringing that up for us to focus in on how, we're should, or how we should hear these letters that are written to the churches, and in particular, this message that we find in the book of Revelation. Right? Because this is not a, a casual walking into uh, the living room and the comfortable spaces of heaven. Right? This isn't an informal word. This is a word that more often than not occurs in the throne room of God. And that atmosphere should create a certain awe, a certain reverence, and should absolutely influence how these words and this message is received and heard. It's offered in the throne room of God, which leads to the follow-up question, what takes place in the throne room of God? What do we, what do we typically see happen there? When we find ourselves standing before the throne of God, what song do we sing? That, that's the question that I want us to dive into this morning, and I want us to have that picture of his throne room as we anticipate the fullness of this message that he has for us. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll dive further into it. Uh, we've started this series that takes us through these letter to the churches in Revelation with, again, an intent to encourage one another that God's power unleashes itself through the church. And what does it look like when that power begins to merge in the church? And so we look at these churches as examples of how we should conduct ourselves as a body of Christ. We looked at the church of Ephesus and saw that there were many things that were affirmed. I see your good deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, your ability to, to test and determine between that which is false and good. The one thing that was held against the church in Ephesus, right? you have forsaken your first love. We classified it as the problem of drift. It wasn't that Jesus was unimportant. It was just that he was no longer the most important. And that made them susceptible to drifting and and, and giving up in their faith. And so the, the remedy was remember, repent, do. Do the things you did at first. And we also saw this formula that each of these letters points to a promise, a reward to those who hear, those who are victorious. As it said to the church in Ephesus, you will be able to share in the tree of life. And we saw this disparity between life and death. It emerged and becomes a dominant theme in the whole book of Revelation. Then a couple of weeks ago, we started the next letter to, to Smyrna, Smyrna doesn't have anything being held against it like so many of the other churches do, uh, do but it is a church that is afflicted, right? There's, there's this distress, both internal and external, that they are trying to carry and to navigate, this threat of persecution. And so this is a letter of encouragement. We follow the, ad, follow the admonition of Christ's words to say, be uh, courageous, right? Don't be afraid. Uh, be faithful. And, and that kind of admonition, that word of encouragement that we find in this letter. Last week, we brought in the story of Hannah uh, for Mother's Day, in honor of Mother's Day, to look at a story of, yes, another season of affliction, but a, so a story of commitment as well, and, and what it means to honor those commitments, and even in those difficult seasons, and to ultimately see that Jesus is sufficient. And that message was designed to hopefully complement what we've also been covering in these other letters of the book of Revelation. Today, we'll finish this letter to the church in Smyrna with that similar formula of a promise of reward to those who can actually not be afraid and be faithful to what Jesus is teaching. So uh, we're going to focus in on verse 11, but I'm going to read the whole letter because it's short, verses 8 through 11, just so we can get a, remember, uh, get a chance to remember everything that it includes. So follow along with me starting in verse 8, chapter 2. 
To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. For I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's our point, our point of focus this morning. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, so you find that common formula. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. When we first talked about this to the church in Ephesus, we talked about the importance of being able to hear the Spirit of God. And that's another reminder to us this morning. We need to open up our hearts and our minds and our souls to hear what the Spirit of God says. And that it's also a formula that points to the ones who are victorious. Another way to translate that is those who overcome, those who conquer. This is a reminder that this is a struggle. To pursue victory, to pursue overcoming means there is something, some obstacle, some challenge that you have to confront, that you have to overcome, right? And so it, it requires resolve. It requires strength. It requires faith. This is a, a call to be victorious. And so we see the promise of reward that those who do overcome, those who do who listen to the church in Ephesus, you get to share in the tree of life. The reward today that is offered to the church in Smyrna is that you will not be hurt by the second death. Now that's an interesting phrase, and this is going to be one that leads us into a greater discussion of the book of Revelation as a whole, uh, but also give us a, a chance to kind of dive into to a little bit other consideration of this throne room question, right? What all takes place in the throne room of God? Because the second death is referenced on several other occasions in the book of Revelation, really towards the later part of the book of Revelation. And I want to get there, but I kind of want to give us some context as we approach those other references. And so, so keep in mind also not just what is the second death, but what takes place in the throne room of God. So the throne room of God is, is referenced in the first few chapters of Revelation, but it's really explicitly described in chapters four and five in particular. And we see a great amount of description and things that take place there. Let me offer a summarization verse from chapter five, verse 13 and 14. It says, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. What takes place in the throne room of God? Worship. That's the first thing. It is an expression. It is a, a venue, an avenue, an atmosphere of declaration of praise to the one who sits on the throne. And that worship is further described, even as laid into chapter 7. Once you get past chapter seven, that's when you really start diving into this apocalyptic kind of end times prophetic material that's going to refer to the seals and the scrolls and the plagues and the seven bowls of wrath and the, the woman and the, the beast and the serpent and, and Babylon and all this incredibly fascinating and descriptive imagery that speaks to this apocalyptic literature. And it all begins to kind of culminate in this 
this, this climactic event towards the end of chapter 19 where you see this rider on a great white horse who comes with the armies of heaven to defeat the beast, right? And so you kind of are, are brought into this battle scene and that kind of leads us to this culmination of events there in chapter 19. And then you get to chapter 20 and it begins this conversation of a thousand year reign with Christ. And this becomes one of the most critical portions of the book of Revelation that so many scholars and theologians and others have wrestled with understanding. In fact, more often than not, when you start talking about the prophecy of Revelation, a lot of it centers around what is your understanding of this thousand year reign with Jesus, okay? And so essentially summary, summary of chapter 20 or the first part of chapter 20 is that there's this first resurrection of those who didn't uh, bear the mark of the beast. They were, they were martyred perhaps by the beast. They didn't worship the beast, but they come back to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Three common interpretations of this part of the scripture. The first would be what is called a premillennialism view. All right, what that means is that the resurrection of Jesus happens before the thousand year reign. It is pre-millennial, okay? And, and this is a very literal understanding of Revelation 20. It means that they, there's a literal belief that Jesus will come back, bind up Satan, and then there will be a thousand year reign with Jesus. That would be a premillennialism view. A second view is amillennialism. And amillennialism doesn't believe in a literal interpretation of a thousand year reign with Jesus. In fact, most amillennialists would say this is metaphorical, right? That the reign of Jesus kind of commenced at the resurrection. This is the age of the church, right? It's, it's metaphor for where we are now, that the resurrection, the rebirth, the renewal that is spoken of here is what you see in terms of the impact of the gospel, setting people free, bringing them into the hope of Christ. So this is a, a non-literal understanding of the thousand-year reign of Jesus, all millennialism, okay? The third, which is the least popular, I guess you could say, is post-millennialism, which adheres to this idea that uh, earth and humanity will achieve this uh, kind of golden age of Christian ethics that will rule for a thousand years, and then Jesus will come. He will come after this thousand-year reign, post-millennialism. That one's harder to substantiate because it doesn't seem like the world is trending towards a golden age of Christian ethics, right? So, but it is at least one of the views that are offered. And so, uh, take your pick. It's up to you. Uh, whichever one you want to subscribe to. Most of the folks that I've read on this, they end up changing at one point or another. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's difficult to ascertain. The point is, though, is that there is this description of this resurrection of those who didn't worship the beast, that were maybe martyred by the beast, that, that remained faithful, that remained loyal, and they reign a thousand years with Jesus. And then look at what is described in chapter 20, verse 6. This is the first resurrection, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and Christ will reign with him for a thousand years, with them for a thousand years. So the second death is referenced again, but it doesn't give us a whole lot of greater understanding in terms of what the second death is, just another depiction of who will not be harmed by it or, or will not be subjected to its power. But the more you read into chapter 20, the more you get some understanding of what the second death actually entails. The next little section in chapter 20 speaks to the judgment of Satan, but then when you get to verse 11, 11 through 15, gives us a little bit more detail. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. 
Here we are in the throne room of God again. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so, so now you have a, a description of the second death. It is the lake of fire, and it is offered in this context of what's actually taking place in the throne room, which is what? Judgment. So two things that are definitively going to take place in the throne room of God, worship and judgment. And judgment is a subject that we typically try to run away from in life and oftentimes even within the church. And, and so it's important for us to understand the inescapability of the judgment of God and understand that it's not just referenced here in the imagery of some apocalyptic book, but it is offered throughout Scripture. And so I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list of Scriptures this morning, but let me offer just a few of, so you get an understanding of how consistent it is revealed in Scripture that judgment is inevitable, right? Daniel chapter 12 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 11, But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Matthew chapter 12, again from Jesus. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account of the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Romans 14, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Peter 3, by water also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Hebrews 9, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Judgment is an inevitable reality for humanity according to the teaching of Scripture. And what we find in the book of Revelation is a greater reemphasis of this and in some ways greater depictions of it because it's referenced there that the second death is an instrument of God's judgment in the throne room of God. And then you get to chapter 21 with the final reference to the second death in the book of Revelation and another depiction of this judgment. Chapter 21 gives us this beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth. That's how it begins, right? This incredible culmination of God being with his people, him wiping every tear from their eyes, there being no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. Right? And he says, to those who are victorious, all of this will be given. Follow along in chapter 21, verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, 
the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. All right, so hell, fire, and brimstone. About time we had one of these messages, right? I mean, I'm a Baptist pastor. I got to live into the stereotypes, so at some point I got to talk on it. Uh, you can see why I didn't do this on Mother's Day, right? Um, the second death is an instrument of God's judgment, right? And, and that's essentially what we see here, this, this lake of fire that is used in this exercise of God's judgment. So I am by no means a scholar of Revelation, and I'm not going to pretend to be. There are numerous people that are far more intelligent than I am that have dove into these questions and these mysteries, and you can read up on those and research those. So what I offer you today is a very simplistic reading of what we just kind of did an overview of, right? From, from my simplistic view, this is how I understand it, that essentially we all live in this life as we know it. There will come a day where we die. This is the first death. That's the death that you and I are familiar with, that we point to, the funerals we, we share in together. That, that is the first death. But then there will be a resurrection, and we believe in a resurrection, don't we, church? We've talked about this before, because if we don't believe that the dead are raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, we're still in our sins and our faith is futile. We're to be pitied more than all people, according to Corinthians. But we believe in a resurrection of the dead. So after the first death, there will be a resurrection of the dead, where we will all stand before the throne room of God and be judged, right? And, and everything that we have done will be offered up into either eternal glory or given over to the second death. And this is the judgment of God. Now, what is that second death, right? Is it everlasting torment and torture? That's kind of the traditional view of hell. I don't know. Is it just the cessation of existence, forever nothingness? I don't know. But in the same way, it's, it's so difficult for us to conceive what heaven will look like and be like. We can give imagery, we can give descriptions. None of us really know the same applies to this second death. Here's what we do know. It is the absence of God. Jesus describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. If God is is good, if God is life, it is the absence of that which is good, is the absence of that which is life. So it is nothing that we should desire. Nothing that we should, we should take it very, very seriously. Right? This is the message that is being offered in the throne room of God. And so the question that I really want to dive into today is not so much what is it, but why do we struggle with talking about judgment, right? If it needs to be taken so seriously, why do we so frequently run from it and avoid these conversations, be that just in life or in the church? We need to have a better grip and, and grasp of what all it really entails. And I, and I want us to dive into this for a little bit. I think one of the reasons we struggle with judgment and justice is because of the way we've seen it kind of play out in society at large. Let, let's Follow along with me for a little bit to try to unpack our discomfort with the topic of judgment uh, on, on any level. First of all, I think we need to all concede that we all aspire to some form of justice. Every society of every era desires some form of justice and orients itself according to what it perceives to be just. 
right? Every society does this, has some form of morality that it follows, some form of morality that allows it to point to certain acts, certain events and say, this is good, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is, this is evil, right? A, a fundamental example is that more often than not, almost every society in existence throughout the eras has pointed to the, the idea that life is good and it is good to protect life. Now, societies may vary on what constitutes murder and the quality of life, but there's this, there's this underwriting morality, there's this underwriting sense of justice that society orients itself to because we all long for justice. It's, it's innate, it's within the human heart. But what's happened throughout the course of human history is we've seen discrepancies from one culture to the next according to this morality, according to this sense of justice. So take polygamy, for example, right? Certain cultures will look upon the practice of polygamy and say, this is right. This is good. This is just. This is what marriage should be. And other cultures will look at it and say, well, no, whoa, no, this is wrong. This is not what marriage should look like. And so we see these discrepancies in morality from one culture to the next, and we begin to wonder, well, how do we know what's really good and bad, right, and wrong, right? And because there's so many variances from one culture to the next, we begin to think, well, who am I to judge another culture? Who am I to say polygamy is wrong? I don't want to be seen as judgmental, right? And one of the reasons we're so fearful of being seen as judgmental is not just because of the discrepancies that we see throughout time and from one culture to the next, but also because we've seen tremendous atrocities, that have taken place in the name of justice or a certain society's definition of morality. Let me give you a few examples. Somewhere along the lines in the 19th century, some scholars began to make an argument and belief system that the Aryan race was superior. And that idea found itself in, in the halls of power in Germany. And it led to the degradation of Jews and many others to the point of genocide. But at the time, in certain circles, that belief in the superior race was seen as good. That was their morality, right? You, you go back to, what, 1787 in the U.S. Constitutional Convention, and, and folks are gathered together trying to figure out how do we determine the population of the southern states, and they have so many enslaved people. And they're debating this, and they come up with the three-fifths compromise that slaves Humans should be considered three-fifths of a person. And it seemed just. It seemed right. But history looks back upon it and it says that's an atrocity. Right? So we've seen time and time again that in the name of justice, in the name of a perceived morality, oppression in, in all these levels of, of affliction that can occur and the harm that can occur. And so we have said, I don't want ever want to make that mistake. I don't ever want to be considered judgmental to the oppression of someone else. And so now we've progressed to a point where the, the mantra of our culture is that we don't ever want to be seen as judgmental. We want to be seen as tolerant, as loving, as open-minded, as accepted, right? Accepting. Because the moment we begin to indicate that we have judgment on something else, well, that that means you're bigoted. That means you're racist. That means you're hateful. It means you're closed-minded. 
And so the, the way that we manage this now is we have this convenient philosophy that allows morality and justice to be subjective. It's your truth. You have your truth, I have mine. And so I, I'm not going to condemn your truth. It's your truth. And just don't condemn mine. And this is the mantra of, of our era and our age. And, and we do it championing this idea that it's tolerant, that it's loving, that it's open-minded, when in reality, it's just an escape clause. That's all it is. It's an easy out that allows us to not have to think critically about judgment and justice. That's all it is. All it really does is allow us to escape the difficulty of the situation. It actually undermines the very morality and justice we think it's preserving. It's a false sense of harmony that cannot stand the test of critical thinking. You want to know why? Because under that way of thinking, there's nothing wrong with what Hitler did. That was his truth. How dare you condemn it? There's nothing wrong with the South's approach to slavery. That's their truth. That way of thinking crumbles the minute you really start to try to apply it. It undermines the sense of the morality that it's trying to uphold. And yet we flock to it in mass, right? And so then we have this new era of thinking, right? That, that we should never be judgmental, that it's just their truth. And we start to take this, this easy out and we apply it to God. Here's how it usually manifests itself in these conversations in the church or in society. How can an all-loving God condemn people to hell? No way he would do that. That, that seems too harsh. And so we find something that makes us feel a little bit more comfortable. We, we search for an answer, and so we say, okay, well, maybe all these roads lead to heaven, right? Then that way we all get, it's just their own truth. And man, that sounds so nice, and it creates that false sense of harmony that we want. But what I would argue is that that way of thinking actually undermines God's goodness and undermines his justice that doesn't preserve it, right? Play it out for a little bit. Think, think through this critically. If there is a creator who has given us all these different pathways to him and they all lead to him, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, Scientology, Mormonism, right? The list goes on and on and on. You know, it's interesting that if you actually study any of those religions, none of them teach this. None of them teach that there's all these different ways to God. They're all exclusive. They all claim that their way is the only way. So that means that this, this loving God has given all these different pathways that contradict one another. And they have such a varying degree of not just their view of their afterlife, but different moralities, different codes that actually creates conflict with one another breeds conflict to the point that we can now turn the pages of human history and see war after war and bloodshed after bloodshed done in the name of religion. And so that's what God has done. Created this, this multi-system, multi-faceted way to him that just creates confusion and conflict in this life. It conceals truth, it doesn't reveal it. That diminishes his goodness. Think about this through the context of a, of a teacher or a parent. Imagine a teacher standing in front of a classroom and looking at their class 
and giving different subsets of students different rules, different standards, different lessons, different grading scales, and giving them different ways in which they can conduct themselves in the classroom that's going to lead to inevitable conflict with the rest of their peers. Would we ever consider that teacher good? Think of a parent that does that to their children. You've got this set of rules, you've got this set of rules. How often would those children create conflict with one another? We'd never call a parent like that good. Makes no sense to attribute that to God. And it undermines not just his goodness, but his justice. Right? Because it doesn't take seriously the problem of evil. And we all believe that there's a problem with evil. Even the question itself implies our desire for justice. When we say, how could an, un- an all-loving God condemn people to hell? What are we saying? We're saying that's unfair. Which implies that we have a notion of that which is fair and unfair, just and unjust. We're using our heart's desire for justice in condemning God, right? And so it doesn't take seriously this human propensity towards justice. It undermines it and says we really shouldn't have justice at all. Everyone gets to get there. Right? Doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter how you live, everyone gets to go to heaven. Doesn't that sound nice? And yet we would never applaud a judge that operates where no criminal is ever persecuted for their crimes, where every crime goes unpunished, every criminal is set free. We would never call that just. And we wouldn't celebrate it. And so when we adhere to that, it allows us to live however we want In society, you can't judge me because this is my truth and we get to live however we want in the afterlife because we all get to get there. It crumbles the sense of morality and justice that we desire. So I I urge you to strongly warn off that sort of mentality that says, oh, your truth, my truth, this false sense of harmony, we have to have a safe and reasonable way to talk about the inevitability of justice and judgment for humanity. Here's the real question we're wrestling with. Not what is justice, not what is the second death, but in whose hands does it belong? That's the heart of the question. And you're really given two choices. You can either place that sense of justice, that sense of judgment, in the hands of humanity or in the hands of a creator. That's it. And the reason we veer towards the first option more often than not is because if it's in the hands of humanity, then I get to decide. I get to decide what is right and wrong for myself. I get to have that knowledge of good and evil. Oh, wait a second. That sounds like sin. That's exactly the problem of the garden. And so no wonder we're prone towards that path. We have to get to a place to say, justice is inevitable. It doesn't belong in my hands. It belongs in the hands of a creator. And so when we talk about the second death, we should do so understanding that our place in that throne room of God is to stand before the throne, not on it, and to trust his voice above our own. And that's really where I wanna kind of conclude this consideration this morning is to think about that moment because who can truly stand before the throne of God? 
Who can truly stand and give an account for every empty word they've ever said? Give an account for everything you've ever done in life that is good or bad. Who can truly stand under that judgment and be found worthy? No one. None of us. And yet, what that shows us is that what we really need is not justice, we need mercy. We need a savior. We need a high priest. That's what the throne room of God teaches us. And what we find when we open up our hearts and our ears to the word that has been offered to the churches is that we do not need to fear the second death because it will not harm us. Why is that, church? Because in Jesus, we have the perfect culmination of God's justice and his mercy. That when God saw fit to lay all the sin of humanity upon the shoulders of Christ, and Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, absorbing the fullness of God's wrath, then God the just was satisfied. He was fully satisfied when Christ took all of our sin and gave us all of his righteousness and bore the penalty that brings us peace. It was all laid upon him. He absorbed it fully for you and for me. And God was found just. But not only that, in Christ we find not just his justice, we find his mercy. For Jesus begins to serve as a high priest that intercedes as the Savior that you and I both so desperately need. And that is where we begin to celebrate and move out of this sense of judgment and into a spirit of worship when we truly embrace and consider all that has been done for us in Christ. Here's, here's how I want to paint the picture for you this morning. The book of Hebrews paints this picture more clearly than any other book in the scripture for my estimation. And so I, I'm going to paraphrase all, all, everything I'm sharing with you is coming from the book of Hebrews. I'm going to I'm going to read certain elements of this passage. I'm going to paraphrase of it, expound on it a little bit, but this will be what kind of gives us this concluding image that I want us to hold on to this morning. Where Hebrews tells us that since children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil, right? So, so God allows Jesus to share in our humanity so that Jesus can break the power of the devil who holds the power of death. He frees those who all their lives are held in slavery by the fear of death. He sets us free from that fear. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He is made like us, in every way, so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And because Jesus lives forever, because he lives, not only can we face tomorrow, not only can we see that life is worth living, but because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priest. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. 
He ever lives to intercede for you and for me. The main point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the inner sanctuary. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, obtaining eternal redemption. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place. He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen? Amen. He intercedes for you. He appears before God for you. So we do not face with fear the second death. It can bring us no harm. So what does that mean for you and me today? How does that influence how we face tomorrow. Since we have such a great high priest, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who has promised is faithful. Let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not shrink back because we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who believe and are saved. We stand before the throne of God and we see that we have a great high priest whose name is love. And he ever lives and pleads for you and for me. And our experience in the throne room of God will be an experience of worship. Where we cry out, hallelujah, praise the one, let us praise the risen son of God. May that be the cry of our hearts today and forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is beyond our comprehension to even begin to imagine your throne room, to even begin to try to anticipate the worship that will take place, the justice that will be put on display. Forgive us, Father, for all the many ways that we try to claim responsibility for justice. The many ways that we try to climb upon your throne and sit in a seat that only belongs to you. Father, we acknowledge that those tendencies are driven from a heart that is fearful. Fearful of what that may look like. And so, Father, may we take that fear and transform it to surrender and once again find comfort in the all-consuming reality that Jesus intercedes for us, that Jesus stands before the throne room of God and pleads on our behalf, and in him we see that God the just is satisfied and we are also able to celebrate not just in his justice but in his beautiful mercy. 
Thank you, Father, that you have given us the assurance that our time before your throne will be a time of unending worship and celebration. For that, Father, we are forever grateful. And we declare that praise to one another today that you might receive the glory you so richly deserve for the way that you've saved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.